This is the Dive Bomb Squadcast, presented by Dive Bomb Industries. What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the Dive Bomb Squadcast. I'm your host, Asher Tolliver. As a former baseball player, I am very excited about the guy we have on with us today, 14-year big league veteran, three-time All-Star, and owner of Sure Shot Game Calls, Mr. Jay Bruce. Jay, how you doing, man? Nice. I'm doing well, man. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for joining me today. I, uh, oh, thanks for having me. I know we talked briefly about it before we got on here, but I'm gonna, I want to talk about it a little bit more so our listeners can hear it. I know things must feel a little weird for you not being in florida this time of year i know it's early but how are you feeling about the transition so far man it's been good you know it's been good yeah i would i would be you know lying to you if i said that you know i haven't thought about it i haven't you know wondered you know what it would be what it would be like if i was still playing this and that but i'm where i need to be man you know i um very very fortunate to have had the career that i had you know i did everything that i could have imagined. I think everyone wants to be better at whatever they do. So to say that is not even worth saying, but, um, you know, I don't feel like I left something on the table or man, I, I, you know, still need to be out there. If I would have done this, this or that, you know, I'm good where I am. You know, I've got a beautiful family here at home and I, um, have this new venture in sure shop that I've been kind of, you know, just completely, um, you know, immersed in. So it's uh, it's been fun, man. I'm still a huge fan of the game. I love baseball. I always will. I'll watch it. I've got good friends that are you know that, that I've made throughout the time playing and that I'll keep up with. But um, there's a new chapter in my life, and I'm I'm really excited about that too. Awesome. Well, it's great to connect with a ball player that's passionate about waterfowl hunting. You would think there would be a ton of guys that are into waterfowl hunting with the seasons being perfect for one another. But my experience was few and far between do you have many buddies from your past teams that were hardcore waterfowl hunters yeah you know you, you find a, a couple of guys a team that like have done it or do it a little bit you see a lot more deer hunting um and you know you you kind of have to look for them if, you, if you're going to find those waterfowl guys you know and it's it's really um it's it's so funny because you know getting into the industry now you realize what hardcore waterfowlers are you know what I mean? And, and there's, uh, there's a lot of people who talk about, you know, how much they hunt or talk about waterfowl hunting or this and that. But I mean, you know, even my, the level that I, I do it at, I mean, some people are chasing these birds about everywhere all year, man. And, you know, for here, you get kind of accustomed to like the type of hunting you do in the Southeast and Southeast Texas and, you know, the, the rice fields and, and, you know, the things that, are just like super customary here but like you go to other places and it's a completely different world and i tell you what man that's been the most exciting thing for me um getting into the sure shot situation is is connecting with people and understanding the different you know the different walks of it all i mean there's a there's a whole whole you know different world out there that i'm excited to, to be a part of now and to get to know better absolutely yeah i'm still close with a few guys that were into it but kind of like you said there's there's guys that had waterfowl hunted, but yeah. not waterfowl hunters. It was a big difference. No, that's exactly right. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, the funny, the funny thing, all the guys from Texas, uh, a lot of the guys from Texas anyway, you know, I'll be talking about, you know, duck hunting or goose hunting or, or teal season or whatever. And 
you know, they'll be like, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm on a lease in South Texas and sometimes we like, you know, hop shoot some of these ponds. And I'm like, dude, what are you talking about? And they're like, yeah, like, you know, just like after deer hunts, we'll go and, you know, okay. sit on a levee of a cow tank and sh- that's our duck hunts. And I'm like, no, that's not what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, but it's, um, you know, it, it is cool to, it, to connect with, you know, a, the group of people that are so passionate about it. And it's, um, you know, cause it's, it's good to find anyone that's passionate about anything like, you know, like some of the guys you find in the waterfowl industry. So. Jay, are you more of a duck hunter or a goose hunter? 99% duck hunter, man. Um, you know, I, well, I'm guessing and I assume and hope that I'm continue to do more, more goose hunting. Um, you know, down here, man, there used to be so many geese, so many geese, and it's it's uh, it's tough to hunt them down here now. So you gotta go. I gotta go more north to to, to hunt them. And um, you know, I'm a I'm a big speckle belly guy. I love to shoot speckle belly geese. Um, you know, the snow geese around here they come and go. It's hit or miss. But um, yeah, I'm way more ate up with with uh, the ducks than I, as I you know than the geese. Yeah, it's something they just don't. They just don't quite winter there the way that no. they used to 20, 30 years ago. So yeah, you know, like Katy, Texas used to be like the goose capital of yeah. the world or something. You know, it was crazy. I remember playing soccer tournaments when I was like 12, 11 years old and thousands and thousands and thousands of geese like just in the field next to us. And like it just doesn't happen anymore. So there's so much urbanization of this the agricultural land, man. Sure. It's uh you know, it really kind of puts a damper on it. And then all the agriculture that's being produced to the north of us kind of stops them short too, I think. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the landscape's definitely always changing uh, from, like you said, uh, you know, some of these areas that are, you know, populations getting a little bit more dense, farming practices change a little bit, hunting pressure, you know, yep. birds learn how to adapt. They're, oh, for they're sure. insanely adaptable. And there's areas that, you know, in the past that, didn't used to have birds that have birds now there's areas that yeah i feel like it's moving west don't have birds. yeah yeah i mean the way it's been explained to me by biologists and such i've asked these same questions just because it's the answers that everybody wants to know and mm-hmm. they say there's not a huge shift but they say it's more like if you took a pie and you smashed your hand down on it where it used to be more condensed into a certain area now it's just getting spread out further so these areas that used to hold uh higher populations of birds are now maybe holding fewer but there's areas that didn't used to hold birds that are starting to pick them up so people aren't seeing the numbers in some places so at least for the you know the portions lower portions of the mississippi flyway that's the way it's been explained to me it's not a, a massive shift uh per se but more of a a broadening so you can yeah, you know, see it all over for sure and I, yeah i've got a buddy that, that farms a couple thousand acres and he farms my place that i own down here to, to hunt and you know one of the things that i don't think a lot of people talk about or even consider is the the way the the, the machinery has gotten so much Absolutely. more efficient you know they're not you're not dropping you know uh, grain very out of the bin anymore. Yes, very little. And I think the types of the rice that's grown, um, a biologist down here told me that, you know, the types of rice even that's grown is harder on the on the ducks to eat. And so, you know, if the food's not where they need it, they're going to go find it. And, 
it's uh it's really really interesting and stuff that you'd never even think of and man honestly i've gotten a lot more into just trying to figure out a way to hold ducks almost more than shooting them to be honest with you like that's a task and a and like a you know an obstacle that that i've really enjoyed is figuring out how to hold if i can hold one more duck you know that's that's uh, something that i can be proud of and it's yeah yeah, it really is, man. It really is. And, you know, the, when, then you get into the dog side of things. and There's so many other things other than just shooting the birds that, like, I think people that may not know a lot about hunting and may not really understand everything that goes into it, they, they don't consider those other things to be part of the, the enjoyment of it, you know? Yeah, there's a reason that hunters and um, stewards of the land are the greatest conservationists because while you may be taken you're given a lot more than you're taking of course. everybody else is bitching about um you know you killing a limit of birds but they're they've done nothing to contribute to the long-term yeah. success of waterfowl so that's a that's a topic sure. we could, we could discuss later yeah for sure hours but yeah it's uh you know there's there are no greater conservationists than the ones that are looking out for these birds. And as much as we like shooting them, it's kind of like you said, there's, there's a lot of passion there just figuring out how to, how to feed them, how to hold them, how yep. to attract more of them. I've actually just put in a, a sealed bid yesterday on a little property that I've been trying to buy forever. And it's only 45 acres, but just the thought of what I could possibly do with that tiny little property kind of keeps me up at night, even more than yeah. the thought of even killing a bird off. Like, I don't, I don't um, care. We travel all over all over the world and the world and to shoot waterfowl. Yeah. We've had some, you know, amazing days. I think seven days over a hundred this year. So the thought of killing wow. birds is not that is not exciting to That's me. That's not what driving you. Yeah. If I get this place, like, oh man, like I can, you know, work on this levee system and water control and moist soil and food and where am I going to put the blinds and uh, how am yep. I going to stagger flooding it? So that's the kind of stuff that I find myself awake at three or four o'clock in the morning, not thinking about them cupped up and coming in. Now, no. obviously if my kids can get out there and, and shoot them, that's, that's sure. the goal. But geez, for me, just the thought of, man, how can we, how can we attract more? How can we hold Creating them? Habitat. Sure, you know, yeah. Just having some nice hunts out here. So I'm right yeah. there with you. Now your property, tell me, uh, tell me a little bit about your property that you got. Here. Yeah. So uh, in 2017, I purchased 800 acres down here in Nome, Texas, which is, um, you know, Southeast Texas, um, you know, kind of between Beaumont and Houston and, you know, um, it's off the coast, probably like 30 miles as the crow flies. And, you know, that's another thing that I'm super excited about being home now is that I get to manage like my property, you know, more, more hands-on, um, and it's a really, really unique property for this area because we're covered up in agricultural land, rice fields, and I've got, I've got marsh. I've got about 100 acres of marsh. I've got 160 acres of rice, and then I've got 350 acres of woods, and then the rest of it's cow pasture. Okay. Um, and so, you know, I have the opportunity to hunt marsh style uh i've created i've created 65 acres of flooded timber that is still kind of hit or miss you know like i'm still kind of hoping the birds imprint a little bit and figuring out you know how to again like how to create a better situation for them you know and then the rice is kind of the bread and butter here in, in southeast texas so we've got that and 
So for me, you know, I've got basically every hunting situation or opportunity there is, and now I get to try and figure out when, where, and why the birds go where where they go, you know, and trying to manage it for, you know, not too much pressure. Do I have more soil units? Do I use rice? How do I make sure that the, you know, the water is off the flooded timber in time? And, you know, how much water should be on it? You know, do, do, do birds like 18 inches of water or 24 or 7? Like, you know, it's, um, there are a million questions that I can ask myself every single day and creating a plan to try and, like, check the boxes in the order that you need to check them is something that I'm super, super excited about and don't want to put a timetable on. But, um, you know, right now our bread and butter is early in the season. Obviously the teal hunting here is, is jam up. That's mm-hmm. last year. That was our duck season. Basically it was a miserable big duck season for us down here. But, um, and then, you know, later in the season, the marshes on the West side of my property start, you know, producing and holding a lot of ducks and, um, the deal there is, you know, you got to want it a little bit more. You got to want to go get them. You got to want to, to, well, it's not as quite as country club as the rice field pit line deal, but, um, but I have a lot of options, man. It's a place that, you know, I hope it turns into a legacy, you know, place for my family. And it's, um, kind of the, the, the burn is slow. You know, I, I want to make sure I do it right. I want to take my time with it and make it a place that, you know, my kids and their kids and their kids can come hot for, you know, as long as they want. So it's, uh, it's been exciting. That's awesome. Let's talk a little bit about your background, uh, where you grew up, when the fire was lit for ducks, who was responsible for lighting that fire, all that good stuff, upbringing, uh, introduction. Yeah, man. So, you know, I grew up here in Beaumont, Texas, Southeast Texas, and, you know, hunting's kind of in the blood. Um, just, you know, if you're from this area, you know, and I'm from a blue collar family and, you know, we were, everyone was, you know, always outdoors and, um, you know, a lot, I did a lot more dove hunting when I was younger than I did duck hunting. And, you know, really, um, it was just because of the ability to go do it. You know, you didn't need, it didn't need to be exactly, you know, set up specifically for doves as ducks do. You know, you can kind of hunt doves in a myriad of different habitats and um you know my dad knew some people you know knew a bunch of people that that had some land that they dove hunted on and um but you know duck hunting here and there when i was a lot younger and you know really when the fire was lit when is when i got drafted um because like you mentioned you know i was 18 years old came home to beaumont and you know it was the winter time and so uh, the, the the farmer that I mentioned, Josie, his name's Josie Dishman. Um, we grew up together playing sports together, and he was back running his family's farm. And you know, he asked me if I wanted to go duck hunting, and you know, he asked me, and I went with him, and that was kind of it, man. Like I couldn't get enough of it, and you know, just went as much as I could. I lived in Houston for a few years, uh, off and on, when I was younger, uh, as far as in my in my career. So I didn't get to go quite as much as I wanted to early early on. But I mean, you know, for the last probably 12 years, man, it's been like basically it's everything I could do to, to hunt as much as possible. So um, that, that's kind of where, you know, it started for me. I've, I've always loved to duck hunt, did a lot more dove hunting when I was younger. But when I was 18 or 19, when the fire was kind of, you know, really lit for me as far as waterfowl goes and, um, 
you know, now it better be burning as, as bright as it's ever been because I'm a duck call company. So that's right. Like I mentioned in the intro, you had a very long playing career, like what, 16 or 17 or so years professionally. Um, you know, I played a while, 10 years, not in the same conversation as your level of accomplishment. Uh, I was a career minor leaguer with a couple cups of coffee in the show, not a three-time all-star and two-time <laughs> silver slugger, but I do understand the difficulty of trying to manage an off-season and training with trying to go waterfowl hunting as much as you possibly can. Can you talk a little bit about your routine uh, to stay at the top of your game while also getting to enjoy as much time as you possibly could in the field or in the marsh? Yeah, for sure, man. So, you know, when I was younger, you know, I can probably speak for a lot of guys who were in their late teens, early twenties. Um, you know, you kind of burnt the candle at both ends. You know, you didn't, you did not consider the night to be a hindrance on the morning. Um, and then, you know, before kids, and, you know, I dated my wife in high school, but still before we were married, you know, she was still in college or going, you know, teaching. She was a teacher. And, you know, so a lot of uh, late nights, a little bit of sleep. And then, you know, I had nothing the rest of the, you know, the next day. So I'd get up miserably tired, go hunt, and I'd come home and I'd sleep until, you know, 12, 30, 1 o'clock. And then I'd work out at, 2 p.m. or whatever so you know the workouts kind of jumped around and you know some mornings I, I made sure that you know it was working out first and then not duck hunting that day or you know when the weather was going to be absolutely miserable <laughs> yeah you had to pick your battles a little bit um you know but then as I got older I really had to start balancing you know life a little more you know got married had kids um and, you know, you kind of, the, the, the late nights slowed down a little bit. And then really it's kind of when that's when it really opened up, you know, as far as a quality, you know, balance between hunting and, and working out because, you know, you, you weren't running on empty. You know, you were, you, you had the ability to go hunt in the morning, go home, take a break, small nap, and then, you know, get a quality lift in. And then, you know, early in the off season, I would only lift three days a week. And so then I, those other days of the week and the weekends, I could duck hunt those days and still, you know, get my you know hunts in and, and still get my lifts in and feel good about it. And, you know, the buddies that I was going, that I was going hunting with as we got a little older, they were out of college and had real jobs. And so, you know, the balance kind of made itself. Um, and, you know, it just kind of continued that way. You know, now it's, um, you know, fortunately, when it, since I bought my place here in Nome, you know, I can be home early. I can go get my lips in right after I get home because I went to bed at 8.30 or 9 o'clock because the kids are in bed. You know, my goal during chill season is to be home to take the kids to school. And so, you know, it, it's kind of a natural progression. It was a natural progression for me to, you know, kind of be able to balance that. But, um, man, it's tough because if, you know, if you're not careful, you know, you'll find yourself <laughs> – looking down the barrel of, of no sleep and a terrible list and, you know, probably a miserable hunt a lot of times, you know what I mean? So, um, as I get a little older, it's been definitely easier to, to balance that. And, you know, you, uh, you, you just plan a little better to be honest with you. So dude, that hit that like hit so hard for me, dude. All I could think about was, 
we would leave at midnight to go to buy Amita. And I had this structured plan where I had to strategically leave so I could be home where I could lay down at one. So we'd typically leave at, you know, about midnight. We'd get in line at buy Amita typically around like two to be up toward the front of the line. You could leave the gate at four. Well, I always had to leave so I could eat and get home and lay down by one. I set my alarm for two hours because the high school worked out at three. So what I did is I had this like ridiculously structured like routine and kind of like you said, like I would pick the days if if we were hunting the woods and I saw it was going to rain or something, then I would I would maybe change my schedule a little bit that week to where. Maybe I was lifting two days in a row where I was going day on, day off, day on. But if I saw there was three days of sunshine coming, you know, but like you said, there's a lot of times you are looking down the barrel at, you're just like miserable. I mean, there was was on and I was like, why am I doing this? I'm just going just to go because I can. For sure. It sucks. Like even days were killing them. And I was like, absolutely miserable. Like, yeah, went to bed at 10 or 10 30 woke up at midnight by eight in the morning you're just like completely dead, done dead exhausted yeah. and then you know maybe you do get a two-hour nap but by that point when you wake up you've gotten into your rem sleep you feel like a freaking zombie and then you're like in the middle yeah. of your workout like wondering why you're not able to hit numbers that you're have That's usually hit true. and just dude finding that balance but just hearing you say that just yeah just took took me back man my trainer man i'd get there and we'd be doing the workout he'd be like dude what, what are you doing like <laughs> you know and so he'd have to manipulate the workout and then you know there's so many times where i'd call him at 10 30 when i lifted noon. i'm like hey dude i need to i need a little more sleep and you know, it, it never worked out, you know, the way it should have. But fortunately, like I said, the progression happened for me pretty naturally and pretty quickly. And, you know, what, what do they say? The use is wasted on the young. But- <laughs> Something like that, you know. So it's like looking back, I probably wouldn't have done it any differently. But, um, you know, fortunately, um, it didn't. It didn't take over too much where I couldn't get, you know, couldn't stay on track. So I'd say, I'd say it. You did okay. See, the difference is my workouts, I was training to try to make a double-A, triple-A squad. You were, you know, sitting on a a huge contract. (laughs) That's a big difference there. Hey, I want to ask you a a few more baseball questions before we move back into waterfowl, if that's cool, because I can't have Jay Bruce on the podcast and not ask a few good baseball questions because then I don't want everybody mad at me. So we got to – we got to ask yeah. a few baseball questions. I know this is going to be really, really tough, uh, especially with the career you had. But do you have a favorite memory from your career that really sticks out? Yeah, so my favorite playing career, like me performance-wise, was I had a walk-off home run in 2010 to clinch the NL Central um, against the Houston Astros. I think I remember that. And I hit it off a left-handed pitcher, which was super cool for me. And um I have a funny little fact about the left-handed pitcher situation. So for a long time, I led all the major leagues in home runs against left-handers, like lefty or righties, which was kind of like a people wouldn't think that because I was a left-handed hitter and blah, 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 the left-handed specialist and all that stuff. Yeah. But, um, you know, the funny story behind the the walk-off home run is that day, Wandy Rodriguez was the starting pitcher. And, you know, Dusty Baker is my man, dude. He's my guy. Like, he's like my grandpa. We still talk. Also, speaking of Dusty, avid waterfowler. 
Really? Um, yes. Avid every singer guy. I mean, dude, if you if you can do it, he does it. Yeah, dude, uh, unbelievable. I would get random emails from some from some email page, some email address. Dusty holding a rack of ducks, or a turkey, or whatever it may be. I would never yeah, he he hunts that Sacramento Valley. Um, and so anyway, Dusty was my manager for my first six years of my career, and. He's like my grandpa, man. He taught me so much as a human being, as a man, as a, you know, as a dad, everything. And one guy that I had absolutely zero chance against was Juan Rodriguez, which is like so random because he's like an 86 to 88 mile an hour lefty with, you know, whatever. Not, not, I mean, good player because he played for so long, but like not someone you think, God, can't hit him, you know? Well, you know, for for those years that I was playing with Dusty, man, I mean, you know, I was playing 155 to 160 games a year. Like I was getting 700 plate appearances or 600 plate appearances, whatever. And you know, it was hard to find me days off, and I didn't want them. You know, I didn't. I was trying to play every single play, every day I could play. And he finally got to the point where he called me and he said, "Junior, man, I just can't play you against Juan Rodriguez anymore. Like you, you, you don't get any days off as it is." And this guy, you're not hitting if you play. So, like, let's just take that. You just take a day. Just these are your, that's your day off. When we play Juan Rodriguez, you don't play. Show up at six. Don't come to the field. Don't 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 come to the field till late. Whatever. But you're not playing. And so, you know, fought tooth and nail, but he ended up coming out on top on that one. Well, this day, September twenty eighth, he came up to me. He said, "Hey, man." Listen, Wandy's pitching tomorrow, and you're not supposed to play, but we got a chance to win this thing. So you're in there. You know, I want you in there if we clinch the division. The first time the Reds will be in the, be in the playoffs since 1995, and blah, 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 all this stuff. And so I was like, all right, thanks, perfect. So he hit me seventh, and I usually I would hit fourth or fifth. Um, and Wandy was still in the game for my last like regulation and bat in the game and bases were loaded and I smoked the ball and it was like a short hop to second base and the second baseman dove caught it and threw me out of first base with the bases loaded or push ahead and we had like Sean Marshall, Jonathan Broxton and Aroldis Chapman. So the game was over. Yeah. You know, if you got to those guys, it was done. Um, and so I was like, God, that was my chance. You know, like I, I had a chance to like, Break the streak on this whole Wandy Rodriguez thing, blah, 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 blah. Didn't do it. So, Wandy comes out of the game, and I'm leading off the 10th inning, and Tim Burdick is pitching. And first pitch, fastball, kind of middle away, home run to center field, walk off. Reds go to the, you know, Reds go to the playoffs for the first time since 1995. Um, you know, like the fifth or sixth time the walk-off homers clinch the division in the history of the game. And it's all because Dusty Baker wanted me on the field when we clinched. Right. And usually I wouldn't have been playing because I was terrible against Wandy, dude. I had no chance. And um, so that is my favorite. Too cool, man. Yeah, favorite playing memory. Absolutely awesome. I mean, dude, you're 
You're a Cincinnati Reds legend. You also played for the New York Mets, Cleveland Indians, Seattle Mariners. Yeah, the Mariners, the Yankees. What was your favorite organization to be a part of? I mean, I, I, it's hard it, it to say the Reds. Yeah, it was the Reds, and that's Reds, no disrespect you know. to any you know any other organization. I think that my best experience that I had away from Cincinnati was probably Philadelphia. Okay. Uh, the group of guys was they were incredible. I mean, they were salt of the earth. That was 19 and 20. Okay. Um, so I started 19 with the Mariners. Um, and on the May, like the 24th or something like that, or May the 24th, I don't know, early May, or that time in May, I hit my 300 home run. It was off of Tyler Skaggs, who like two weeks later passed away. Um, and right after that, I got traded to the Phillies. Um, and, you know, I wasn't having a lot of fun in Seattle. They were not trying to win. Um, you know, they kind of wanted me to be kind of a, like a mentor to the younger guys. And I just didn't feel like I was there in my career at that point. Right. And so they traded me to Philly and Philly was trying to win, man. And then the day that I got there, Andrew McCutcheon towards ACL. And so they were, it was going to kind of be a juggle to get me the at-bats that I was used to. But then, you know, uh, unfortunately for Andrew, he tore his ACL. And, you know, Andrew is one of the most, you know, guys that I respect the most in the game. I and mean, we came up together, drafted the same year. He was the 11th pick overall. I was a 12th pick overall. Oh, five, yeah. Um, and so I get over to Philly and I'm the left fielder. And, um, you know, it really worked out. I got hurt and, you know, didn't play as well as I wanted to um, from a, like, from a statistical standpoint. But I um, I think I was the first player in Major League history to hit 10 home runs in two leagues before the All-Star break or something, something ridiculous like that. And so I couldn't pull out of power and played a good left field, but, like, my average was just okay. And then I hurt my elbow and... It was just kind of an injury marred year for me, but um, but Philadelphia was great. Nineteen and then twenty, abbreviated twenty, I was there. Um, you know, I had a really good time in Cleveland. We won twenty two games in a row when I was there. Um, we won that crazy win streak in two thousand seventeen, and um, I hit the walk off double to extend the streak to twenty two. So that was super cool as well. But um, yeah, Cincinnati, man. Cincinnati raised me. Um, you know, I got to play with my idol, King Griffey Jr. Um, you know, I debuted playing center field with Griffey playing right field, which felt like a whole total Twilight Zone moment for me. You know what I mean? So, you were the top prospect in all of baseball before your call up. So I know that yeah. you probably felt a lot of pressure to perform. You tell us a little bit about your big league debut. Yeah, man. So I was a new one prospect in baseball. And, you know, it's funny because going into that year, you know, me and Joey Votto were the two like higher prospects in the game. And, you know, he was honestly kind of in the shadows of me a little bit. And clearly we know how that turned out because he's a Hall of Famer. And, you know, I was just ended up being, I guess, really good for a lot of my career. Um, but, you know, I started, so I, I went to spring training in 08 with a quote-unquote chance to make a team, but the Reds were never going to do that because of the service time deal and, the, you know, all that stuff. And so I had a decent spring training, and, you know, they told me I needed to go down and work on my defense or something. So went down to AAA and absolutely 
killed it, dude. I mean, I hit like 370 with 10 home runs and um, May 27th, I get the call. And so I was in Columbus, drove back to India, drove back to Louisville, got my stuff, met the team the next day in Cincinnati, and I get there, and I'm hitting second playing center field in front of King Griffey Jr. And he's hitting third, he's playing right field. And, you know, I feel like everyone that grew up in the 90s Kenneth Jr. was their idol, pretty much. You know what I mean? And so, you know, there's this funny story. I called the kingdom when I was nine years old, asking him to talk to Kenneth Jr. (laughs) And, um, you know, for me, like, that moment was kind of like that pinch me moment. You know, it was like, holy shit, like, I'm here. And, like, and, you know, I so my debut, I go three for three with a stolen base, two walks, and after the game, Junior comes up to me and he's like, hey, man, I'm downhill from here. It's like, <laughs> cool. So, yeah, and, you know, he was, he could not have been more right, you know what I mean? Because, like, the first two weeks of my career, I couldn't get out. The game was easy. And then reality hit. And then I ended up being, you know, hitting 250 with 20 home runs that year. And essentially was a 250 hitter for my whole career, other than some injury kind of, you know, years. But, um, you know, to be able to play with my idol was incredible. To be able to, you know, to play with with Joey for as long as I did was awesome. He's, you know, one of the closest guys to, you know, to me in the game. And, you know, to watch him just be absolutely incredible has been so cool. And, you know, we kind of came up together. So, I, you know, I braved that first, you know, those first couple of years with him. It was, uh, it was good to have him kind of by my side as a, as a peer and as kind of a mentor. That's awesome, man. Now we could talk about you had a hell of a career. So we, there's a lot of things we could talk about. I want to switch gears back to waterfowl. Sure. Last year, following a 14 year career in Major League <laughs> Baseball, you purchased full ownership stake in SureShot Game Calls, which is one of the oldest and most historical game call companies in the world. What made yeah. you interested in acquiring this business after wrapping up your baseball career? Yeah, so, man, I retired on, I think, April the 18th or something. You know, I, I, I called my wife. We were on a road trip, and we went to Tampa and then to the Blue Jays. Well, they were in Dunedin at the time, playing in Dunedin because of COVID. Yep. And I was in the weird hotel, and I called. I was like, but I'm done. Like, I'm just not having fun. My body hurts. Like, I'm trying to learn how to play first base, and this is just not what I'm what I envisioned for myself. Like I'm not doing this for the reasons that I started doing it. So I'm done. So I get home and I've got a next door neighbor that I'm really close with. And we're talking one day. He's like, Hey man, he's like, I'm in the pilots commission, the tugboat pilots commission with a, with a guy named Charlie Holder. He owns SureShot game calls. And I was like, yeah, man. I was like, you know, I know SureShot's super old and like, I still see the hats and stuff everywhere, but like, I don't know if people, use the stuff still and like you know what's the deal and he's like i don't know he's like and i'm not saying that he wants to get rid of it he goes i know that you're not going to be able to sit on your ass and do nothing so you might just want to have a conversation with him you know he's he's 45 or 46 years old he's got kids in high school and his wife i think wants to start med school or something so he's like it's worth conversation you may be interested in it and it may be a complete non-starter but so anyway he set up a lunch between me him and charlie holder and we're talking and, and dude, I didn't have to even throw bait. He was like, yeah, man, I'm, you know, I think I'm looking to maybe phase out of this thing. 
um, here in the next couple of years. And I was like, hmm, that's interesting. You know, I was like, I love duck hunt. And I was like, you know, I said, Charlie, I'd love to talk more about that because, you know, I've got, I'm 34 years old. I'm retired. I don't have to work. Um, but I don't want to sit at home and do nothing. And so I was like, you know, this may be a great fit. And I feel like, you know, for where SureShot seems to be as a brand, you know, there's, there's not a company that's older and still around, but doing less basically is kind of how I characterized it. And, um, so, you know, we left the lunch and we kind of kept the conversation going and, you know, as we got deeper into talks, you know, I learned a lot about the company and like what, what happened to it. You know, it's the way it became historic was, you know, Cowboy Fernandez was the first person to win the world calling championships with a double read duck call. And that's kind of what made, that's not kind of, that's what made the company famous. And that's what brought it to, you know, where it was. Well, in 2000, I think 11, Cowboy was getting sick and, um, they were basically about six months from closing the doors on the whole deal. And Charlie took over. Charlie had some connections between some like sports writers, some outdoor writers and some, some radio hosts in the, in the, this area. Um, and they introduced Cal, uh, introduced Cowboy to Charlie and Charlie spent a lot of time with Cowboy. And, you know, so Cowboy came to Charlie basically, wanting him to take over the company. And so Charlie took it over in 2011 and basically did everything that it has now when I, when I took over in 2021, he created a logo, he created a website, he got the marketing going, you know, he brought back one of the calls that, that had stopped being made um, that basically you know, he got the wheels turning again. He kept it from, from going under Mm -hmm. and his overarching, um, you know, I guess, uh, message to me was like, Hey man, listen, I've taken this as far as I can and want to take it. Um, it's running itself. Um, it's making a little money here and there and it needs a breath of fresh air and it needs someone that, you know, has a better pulse on, on what's going on. Um, he was like, cause I've taken it as far as I'm going to take it. It can, it can run just like this for who knows how long and be exactly what it is. But, you know, to take it to the next level, it's going to need someone else. And man, at the end of the day, honestly, like I felt that, I felt like that was me. I felt like, you know, for a company that was born in 1959 in Southeast Texas and, was a you know historical duck call company. It was a smaller company, and I was just retired. I'm 34 years old. I don't need the money. I don't have to go get a job. And I have a super, you know, very passionate about waterfowl hunting. I felt like it was a great fit. And, um, you know, I'd never run a business before. I, you know, really, you know, I've been obviously I uh, had the opportunity to, to invest in companies, non waterfowl and stuff like that, but just invest in companies kind of passively. So having a gist of like having the, you know, understanding the gist of what's, what goes on in these types of things, but you know, boots on the ground, man, like it was a, a total new experience for me. And so it's, it's been like drinking out of a water hose or a fire hydrant kind of for, for this, you know, last three or four months. But, um, 
we are we're, we're, we have it pointed north and we are uh, moving along and you know we've really prioritized kind of modernizing and refreshing the brand and you know getting some you know updating the logos and the websites and um you know the new websites coming here in the next couple of weeks and we're um you know we're trying to turn this thing into to what it deserves to be sure. so that's awesome yeah i remember nick costas he said he said you know jay bruce i said well no i don't know him but yeah i know who he is he's like did you play against him i was like no he he's a big leaguer you know like he said no i didn't play against him <laughs> Uh, Dude, I think I yeah, saw. I, said, I think I one of the last Bruce. time we played against each other was <laughs> it was a, you and Saint, you with the Astros, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I was with the Mets, and you came and pitched in Port St. Lucie. Oh I think. my gosh! In spring training, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Did I face you? I don't think. I think I was out of the game. Um, yeah, I probably. Came but I think it was probably two thousand already in there. But oh my gosh, dude! Seventeen, maybe. Yes, it sure was. Yeah. Holy crap! Yep. Yeah, man. Very cool. So Nick, he uh, he's like you, you know, you know Jay Bruce or whatever. I said, yeah, of course, I know Jay Bruce, he's a Cincinnati Reds legend, um, baseball player, of course. And he's like, you know, sure shot game calls. I'm like, yeah, they've been around forever, but I didn't know that. Yeah, like I, I wasn't yeah. sure, you know, kind of like you said, I, like mm-hmm. I know you see the hats everywhere. You heard against them? Yeah, it's and, like yeah. they're OG. You know, they're. They're cool. Um, yeah. But I've never – I don't know what they're doing these days. And uh, he's like, well, he owns it. And I'm like, no kidding. Uh, he's a water founder. He's like, yeah, dude, you need to you need to connect with him. So, Nick, he um, – you know, I'm sure you've talked to Nick. But he used to work for us. Yeah. And, um, you know, he's he's doing his thing now, which is which is awesome. But, I mean, dude, just the history behind this call company is amazing. George Jensen and, like you said, his partner, Cowboy Fernandez, they designed, invented, patented – First double read duck call ever. Yeah. Around like nineteen fifty. You're coming nineteen fifty or fifty two. Invented the uh, the double read. I mean the I double read call. Yeah. Yeah. It's unbelievable, man. It really is. And you know, it has been a call and a system that has you know withstood the the test of time. I mean, there's still so many people who blow double read duck calls. You know, um, I will say that the double read duck calls that are being produced now are a little different than the double reads that, that we have. And, you know, we're still very proud of our system and that system will never, ever leave the Jensen classic. And that call will always be available from SureShot. And, you know, we have a, some ideas on, you know, how to make that, you know, kind of pay homage to, to that whole situation um, with a little more exclusivity, exclu- exclusivity um, moving forward here. But, um, you know, one of the things that, you know, we wanted to do with the company and felt like it was necessary was we wanted to modernize our company and kind of bring it into today's marketplace as far as, you know, the, the market share being the J-frame, the single read, you know, all the, all that, um, those types of duck calls, you know, we have a Louisiana style double read call. And so when I got it and I, you know, I kind of talked to people, heard some feedback, and, you know, one of the things that had been being asked of SureShot forever was, Hey man, when are you going to come out with a single read duck call? When are you going to come out with a J-frame duck call? Well, the previous two owners wanted no part of it. Um, Cowboy had dabbled in it a touch, but never really got to where he felt comfortable with it. So he just, you know, kind of dance with who brought him. 
you know, he, he stuck with the double read, and, which is totally commendable. Um, you know, Charlie kind of wore that same hat, wanted to stick right down the middle of this double read, you know, situation. And, you know, for me, the way I looked at it was like, well, you know, we can either stay the same and continue kind of pushing along with what we've got, or we can, you know, move and try, try our best to move the needle on this thing. And so we got to work on that. And man, I can say that we have come out, well, we're going to come out very soon with a, um, with a J frame single read duck call that in my opinion embodies the look and feel of sure shot in the most positive way possible. Um, as much as you could. And I'm super, super proud of it. And I'm really, really excited about it. I'm excited for people to see it, for to hear it, to use it. And, you know, at the same time, not leave the, the embodiment of sure, sure shot the company. So, um, I'm really excited about it, man. I, um, you know, I hope that, that um, people are going to be excited about it, but I think they are. I've let a number of people that I trust use it, blow it, hold it, all that stuff. And, you know, they've had really, really great things to say about it. And, um, you know, we're going to, we're going to debut or start, you know, start to sell some of these things um, at the Ducks Unlimited Expo in Fort Worth. Awesome. So next month. Next month. Yeah. Yeah. So we've been, we've been hard at work at kind of dialing this thing in and, we're going to have some kind of trial run colors that um, that are going to showcase the, you know some of the capabilities of what we're able what we're going to be able to to um, you know offer people. So I'm really really excited about that. Awesome, absolutely awesome. Are you going to be there? You know we're not dive bombs, not but you know I might I might have to run down. It's not that far. Fort Worth's only it's less than five hours from me, so I might yeah. have to come down. Sure. Well, you know where to find us. Yeah, for sure. I would assume a lot of our younger listeners, they don't, a lot of them don't know who SureShot is because of how no. the, um, you know, the J for game has yeah. taken over and the cutdowns and all that stuff. Yeah. They, they may not even know what a Jensen duck call no. is, which is a tragedy. No. Um, but Jay, as the owner, what plans do you have moving forward to make SureShot a household name for this newer generation of waterfowl hunters. Like you said, you still want to hold on to sure. the legacy of yeah. Sure Shot and the history. Yeah, the heritage, the, right. the history, but and, and know, always respect that. Sure, but as we know, social media marketing, uh, that's the name of the game these days with this newer generation of waterfowlers. It's not about taking out an, an, uh, a commercial or an ad. I mean, no. you can still do it, magazine advertising. Yeah. But these days, to directly be able to reach people through social media is, is absolutely critical. So um, what, what's y'all's plan to attack that? Uh, moving yeah, forward? so, I, you know, you, um, you kind of hit the nail on the head, man. You know, it's uh, these days, just the way with, you know, the way that everything goes. I mean, you know, uh, most of the higher, most of the more quality products these days, whether it's decoys, whether it's duck calls, whether it's gear, hats, shirts, boots, whatever, the quality is very similar. Sure. You know, the quality is similar. Um, you know, it becomes one, it becomes personal preference to a lot of people. And two, it becomes how the story is told. Who is the story getting to? How is it getting to them? And why does it 
hook them more than another story does. And so, you know, our goal is to figure out how we tell the story of SureShot in a, in a way that can, you know, um, entice these younger, younger hunters to be interested in it. And one of those things is I cannot tell you how many times since I just, since I bought the company in October, I'll be out somewhere or I'll be at, I was at my family Thanksgiving and they're like, Hey, I heard you bought, you know, sure shot game calls. I said, yeah, I did. He said, well, man, that was my, that was my dad's first call. And that's the call that I learned to call on. And hold on one second. I'm going to go grab him. So he comes and gets these calls and that, you know, they'll, they'll show them to me. They'll show me these, these 1970s and eighties duck calls that, that they, that they've held on to. Well, you know, the way I want to kind of approach it is, you know, I, we've kind of embodied a, a saying with, with SureShot and we're continuing what's going to be one of our kind of marketing pushes is to pass it on. You know, I want to create something that these younger hunters think is badass, that they think is cool, that that they can read about, that they can look back on and say, man, this is when SureShot started and look at look at everything that's happened. But the issue is people aren't going back and looking into that stuff on their own as much anymore. They need to be told it. It needs to be kind of spoon fed to them a little bit, in my opinion. And so social media is one of the biggest um, ways that that's going to happen. And it's our job to tell the story in a way that entices young people to, to want to be more involved and interested in a brand like SureShot. Um, the other way is, you know, I mentioned modernizing the logo and, and the up, updating the website and, you know, making it one, making it easier for people to get to where they're going is when they're looking for information or when they see an ad for SureShot on Instagram, okay, they can click on it and then they go to a website that's interesting or easy to use or, you know, you can find the sound files easily. Um, the other thing that is going to be huge and I see dive bomb doing it and it's like, I want to emulate you guys. It's, you got to make products, you know, brand branded apparel is something that is so important in my opinion, you know, because one, you know, that's easy marketing. It's, you're walking, these people that are buying the stuff is a walking billboard brand recognition. And the other thing is, you know, it turns into something that, kids want to be a part of, you know, guys, people, people, not even just kids, people want to be a part of stuff that looks good and feels good and is high quality. And it, they want to be a part of that. And SureShot has not had, you know, a true high quality out of the blind piece of apparel. I don't know if ever, you know, they've always had their camo hats, but you know, we are very close to releasing some hats that, are away from out of the blind. They're away from the field. There's something you can wear to to lunch, to um, you know, to out to eat with your buddies, or go play golf in, or be on a boat in. Right. You know, this is the type of stuff that that kind of transcends just the duck blind. Sure. And that's a that's going to be a big a big goal of ours. But none of that stuff happens without making a quality product that you are taking to the blind. And that's you know that's our our duck calls, and that's. You know, you want to make them to where they look good and they sound even better. And it's, um, you know, just drumming up the interest in a brand that um, has been around longer than, you know, most kids these days' parents. Right.
Um, you know, the other one thing that I think is going in Shershot's favor is people are kind of thirsty for that vintage all American. Um, it's cool. It's coming back, yeah, man. And so, if we can, you know, there's there's not there. I, I say there's not a more OG company out there. But I mean, there's you know, Ult is like the only sure. dunk car company that's older than than Shershot, and you know, they're you know they're not making a push to you know, to, to continue to be, you know, at the front of the line. And, um, you know, that's, it's, I know that the duck call market is extremely competitive and I think there's plenty of room for a lot of people in the duck call industry. You know, I really do. I, I don't want to dominate your lander. I just want to be on it. That's kind of the way we look at it. And, um, but the vintage, the Americana, the original stuff is, it's coming back and it's what people want. And, you know, uh, very, very soon here, all of our calls are going to be made, made in Texas. Um, every call is made in America. One of our calls is made in, um, in, in Pennsylvania. And so, you know, they do a great job for us in Pennsylvania there. But, you know, I, I'm from Texas. You know, I do. I want to have all of, all of our stuff made in Texas. And that's a goal of mine as well. And so, you know, all the way up and down the line, man, we just want to brand – we want to build a brand and revive a brand that people are proud to be a part of. Man, I, I, you got a great plan. I mean, all that, that's awesome. And sure shot's got a hell of a story that you guys can tell. And like you said, there is a, a little hunger for being a part of something that's been around a lot longer than, than most of us, most of us have something that's been around from the beginning. It's, it's cool. It's coming back. And if you can find a way to mix that old school with that new, I think you got yeah. you 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 got something that's much more unique than than I think most people out there have to offer. So yeah, and I you know to you got a leg up. I mean, you really do. for sure to piggyback on that a little bit. Um, and I'm sorry, I'm getting long winded here, but oh no, it's uh, you know you see all these duck call companies now that are making incredible products. You know, there's so many call companies out there that make such a good product. Um, a lot of them have been around for a long time and others haven't been around for that long, but are still having incredible amounts of success. Um, there's not a call company that has the history that Shoshai has really. That's still, like I said, still doing it. So the way I look at it is if we can create a product that matches up with these call companies that are kind of leading the market these days, coupled with our history and our, our story and, you know, the, the, uh, the heritage that the brand has and you combine those two I mean we are kind of the you know we can be at the top I mean we really can and, and I'm not that's not disrespecting any other company because there's going to be so many car companies out there that they do a great job with their sales but you know for companies that have the history and the quality of the product there aren't a lot out there that I think that that can match us once we get this thing totally pushed in the right direction and um you know for me that's something that I'm very very proud of and will hold my head up high about for sure it's very exciting man you uh sounds like you guys are on the right track and I'm I look forward to looking up down the road and just seeing where you're at it's going to be a fun progression and everybody that's listening have the opportunity to see this whole thing transform from the history to bringing it into a little bit more of a light to a little bit more of this this new age of waterfowl so that's really exciting i know you 
pretty much have kind of already already answered this question, but uh, you know, I'll let you kind of sum it up. What what are your goals for Sure Shot Game Calls in 2022 and beyond? Man, if I had to put it all kind of in one thought, it would be to you know revitalize a brand that kind of stands alone in the waterfowl industry as far as history and, and um, heritage and create, continue to create products with super high quality and bring new products that people love to a brand that, you know, is, has been around since 1959. And I hope to, you know, be around for, for so much longer and, you know, just kind of re-enter, um, the front of the minds of, of, of the waterfowl industry in a way that we used to be. Absolutely. That's, can't do anything more than that. Become no. the name that pops in people's head whenever they say, man, I need to buy a new duck call or I need to buy a new goose call or whatever it may be. You, you be the name that, that comes to the forefront. So I, For I sure. don't think it For could sure. be better than that. And now people can find you on Instagram at SureShot1959. Is that correct? You got it. Yep. And then our website is sureshotgamecalls.com. And very, very soon, um, you know, probably in the next month, we will be debuting a new website, same same URL, but a new website along with a new line of hats and shirts, um, along with a couple of new dog calls, man. So um, a lot of new stuff in the works for 2022. Um, you know, we're going to continue to listen to people and, you know, kind of really be adaptive and ready to try and give people what they want and um, just make an overall, you know, great product and add to a, you know, add to a line that has, um, that has, you know, been blown over a lot or under a lot of ducks that have been killed. So um that's the plan, man. I mean, I just want to, I, I want to create something that people uh, want to be a part of. That's the bottom line. Absolutely. I mean, I'm going to tell you that I, I want to say the first duck call, hard to say when I was little, little, but I want to say the first duck call that ever touched my lips was a Jensen. My dad had an old wooden Jensen that he blew up. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, I, mean, I would, I would reckon that that was probably the one that whenever he said, here, blow on this and I push air into it, that was probably the first one that I ever did it. Uh, yeah, man. And you know, the cool thing about, you know, our calls as well, and there, there's some other companies that have this too, but you know, no matter what you're looking for, whether it's a, you know, kind of a beginner's call or a classic wooden call or, you know, a, a nicer acrylic double read or even now the J frame and single read, like we're going to offer it. We're going to offer it. And um, so for the whole family, you know, you can find the call that you're looking for. You know, I, I know that my kids come around, blow it, you know, walk around the house, blowing our 650, taking it apart, breaking it, breaking the reeds, putting the reeds in backwards. And, you know, by the time my kids are seven or eight years old, they're going to know more about duck calls than I knew at 33. To be honest with you, you know, I knew about the sounds they made and why they were used, but, you know, as far as where reads sit and what, what makes the pitch change and, you know, how to do a feed chuckle, like all this stuff and put, where to put your hand, like my kids are learning that right now. And, you know, I can be completely honest with you, man. If my kid never picks up a baseball in his entire life competitively, I don't care. I really don't. Like I, I, I want, but stuff like this that that I'm doing, you know, with with sure shot because my kid's five years old now and three, uh, two boys, three and five, 
they barely remember me playing baseball at all. But they're going to vividly remember and know and understand the fact that I owned a duck call company. And, you know, the opportunity and the ability that I have to kind of shape them as conservationists, as hunters, as outdoorsmen, it's, it's right here and it's right now and it's in my face. And, you know, I'm going to use SureShot as a vehicle to really immerse these guys in everything outdoors. And, um, you know, the, there are so many different parts of the web that, that are going to, you know, end up being a positive thing from this. And so, you know, that's another goal of ours, you know, in the near future here is to, to create um, and be more connected with the youth and create a youth initiative to, uh, you know, to get kids hunting. You know, they're, they're I think a few of some of the waterfowl stamps have bought this year that have been bought in a long time. And, you know, the only way that we're going to get kids hunting is to, to introduce them to it. And exactly, exactly. So, that's exactly right, man. So um, a lot more lessons to be learned out in the field than there are on on, on a screen. So I, um, you know, there, there's a lot of awesome things that I'm looking forward to doing with SureShot. Um, but first and foremost, we have to put a quality product out there and something that people are excited to talk about. So absolutely, man. I can tell you, not saying this because I'm on the podcast with you, but I got a call shelf with 60 calls on it, ducks, goose, whatever. But I can tell you, once you guys are rocking and rolling and have yours dialed in i can promise you i'll have one and kind of going back to the cool just being a part of something like i don't wear i wear dive bomb shirts and i wear blank colored soft traveling yeah so that's literally what I, wear. I don't Dude, I, go on I, would wear, and... I would wear a cool like i will wear a cool sure shot shirt that's comfortable yeah. and it's classic and it's well, but, you know they're gonna OG. be like i would wear that and i don't wear that's exactly I, right. dude, I and that's what we're going for man. regular i don't wear regular people stuff. i have more hoodies and shirts and stuff that's yep. to me no disrespect to anybody that has sent me anything but you got to think i mean we're, dude, we're coming out with new shirts every yeah i mean a couple every, of months, every season you know yeah. i mean we're coming out with new i, I have a two closets that have more dive bomb shirts and and i order samples for all these shirts and blank colors that are super comfortable district shirts and and bella and next level and all these nice shirts that that i'm sampling and comparing against i I got more stuff than i know what to do with i don't wear the stuff i give it away but i can tell you a cool classic looking shirt like that that fits wearing is comfortable i'd wear it out to dinner at the lake all day, all the time. And that's what we're going for, man. You know? Yeah, and that's what we're going for. You know, we have a brand that is, that's historic. You know, we don't have to create any, any storylines. We got them. That's we it. have them in spades. You just yeah, we have them in spades. And the shirts and the apparel, I mean, they're, they're going to match, they're going to match that look and feel, man. I mean, we've, we have been very fortunate with the designer that kind of went and kind of redesigned this thing. And, um, and you know his name's Jeremy Teff from Hickory Design Co. And they, they they've done they've done some work. You know a lot they do a lot of work for a lot of people in the industry. And um, you know they created um, a set of logos for us that felt like should have been designed in 1959 in the absolute best way possible. And right. you know we're going to be able to really kind of embody that vintage feel in in a modern way. Uh, with our apparel and our stuff so i'm uh i'm excited about it man yeah hey, before i let you go i got a i got a funny story for you whenever you were 
talking about uh, the Port St. Lucie against the Mets, I got to tell you the only thing that I could think about that day was Tim Tebow was on y'all's team, and yeah. they kept talking about. I mean, it, it, all that was all that was being covered was like Tim Tebow. When's he going to get tell me about it, bro? I have never been so nervous in all my life to potentially give up a hit or like maybe a home run to somebody than I have before that. Cause everybody's like, dude, who's going to give up the first hit to Tim Tebow. And that's all everybody was talking about was like how trash he was. And I was like, bro, if I go in there and I think I got in like, really, I want to say I got in like really early that game. I, Joannis Cespedes was the first dude I faced and Tim Tebow was still in the game, and dude, I could have, I couldn't have cared less about facing about, any of the no, yeah. any of the studs on the Mets. But I was like, please, Lord, don't let me face Tim Tebow. And if I do, let me get him out because I let do not want to be yeah. plastered all over freaking. No doubt, bro. I didn't even care about punching him out. I just didn't want to give up a hit to him because yeah. that's all. All the media was covering, dude, was Tim Tebow, and well, let me say that that's literally all I could. Talk oh, about. dude, it was it was uh, it was Tebow mania there, and oh my gosh, listen, I, I you know so much respect for Tim and everything that he's been able to do in his life, but let me tell you, baseball should not have ever been one of them, <laughs> and he knew that. I think I think that he's one of those guys that is like puts his mind to something, and then you know. He's going to do it, you know, and he's afforded a lot of opportunities because he's Tim Tebow and he's had so much success and he's such a, a good dude and, you know, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, you know, but him being there in camp was such a distraction for everyone involved. And, um, you know, I always say it was just a chapter in his book, you know, he, he, he knew that he wasn't going right. to do be a baseball player. He just, he's going to write a hell of a book one day and he's going to sell every single copy of it he ever prints. And there's going to be a New York Mets uh, chapter in there. And, uh, dude, he is an absolute animal, by the way, like as far as like strength and physical ability, like the, there's not anyone who's, I mean, there's not a lot of people who are, are more physically gifted than he is and or determined. Um, but he did not know anything about the game of baseball. And it was shocking to me because you like, we take so many things for granted as baseball players, like knowing little like words and phrases and sure. the, the lingo and like how the game flows and all that. And it's like, <laughs> Dude, it was like he'd it's like he never took yeah, it's like exactly. It's like he had never played the game before, but had watched a lot of like videos on how to swing and hit and stuff. You know what I mean? Right. And um, you know, hats off to him for for busting his ass trying to do it, but man, it was a distraction for everybody involved and you know the issue I had with the whole deal, and I'm not trying to get, you know, sure. into any of that stuff, but really, but you know, he, he took a a position away from a lot of people that were really, really good. Right. And that was the only the only thing that kind of ruffled my feathers with it is like, man, I know I know people that I grew up with that are very, very talented baseball players that never got this opportunity that would have died to do that, you know? And um so <laughs> Celebrities are the drug, man. Maybe 
took a few at bats away from somebody that had a chance to show out. You know, that's exactly right. And you know, dude, you know how it goes. I mean, it's all it takes sometimes. Yeah, you go up and you you show out and catch the attention of somebody, and then they give you another chance to show out, and you maximize the opportunity. Next thing you know, you're on the radar, man. Yeah, for sure. No, that's. But but I, I had to mention that before I got off here. Dude. Whether it was my first hitter, Colby Rasmus was the first dude I ever faced uh, in the big leagues, and the first dude I ever faced uh, in the minor leagues in 2009 when I signed. A guy named David yeah. Davis. I ended up playing with him. Neither, neither one of those even came close yeah. to the thought of possibly having to give up a hit to Tim T, which I shouldn't have been that nervous. Cause I always, I'm a lefty. always did really, really good against lefty. Yeah. I should have had confidence, but the fact the was problem like, is though, he didn't know any better. I, like, yeah. Like what if this dude just runs into one and like, I, dude, yeah. like, I can't have that. Like my, my know, man. would, I'd never, You'd hear, never hear the end. I mean, people yeah, would still be sure. making fun of me over it. They'd be like, dude, Absolutely. You know Tim Tebow put one in the gap off your ass. And be like, <laughs> dude, no, I didn't dude, want to David face Fader. him. Yeah, dude, I was David. Yeah, I played with David. David pig Farmer. Yeah, I played with him. Pig Farmer. He's like a big time pig farmer. He's got like, yeah. it's like what he does in the offseason. Yeah, I played with him at the Mariners. The catcher, right? Yeah, the catcher. He's big, a pig farmer out of California? Fella. Yeah, that's what he said. <laughs> like, I don't talk to him that much. I'm friends yeah. with him on Instagram, but yeah. I played with him in double. I roomed with him in double A for two years. Yeah, uh, he, I think he went to Korea for a little bit to play. Sure did. Yeah. And he's back with, I want to say he's with the Yankees. Brewer? Okay, okay. I think he's, he was with the Brewers for sure, and I think yeah. he's with the Yankees now. Uh, yeah. Shave face on him, man. Well, yeah, isn't that so funny, man? Like the the small, like the 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 degree of, the degree of separation between oh, like people is, is just it's crazy. Yeah, yeah really. was, we were up in. Um, I'm not trying to go down memory lane or anything, but we were up in Vermont, uh, the Vermont Lake Monsters, uh, mm-hmm. Washington Nationals, and uh, he had come out of the University of Hawaii. I want to say he was the first wow. guy I ever faced uh, huh. after I got drafted that summer, and I have. Yeah, I'm pretty nervous then, pretty nervous every yeah. call up along the way. But, boy, I tell you, the thought of having to face all is <laughs> that what you call Jr. Tim Griffey Jr., is that what you call him? Yeah, that's, that's what everybody called him. It was funny, man. Hey, that, uh, fun. this has been an absolute blast, man. I um, It's exciting. I'm I'm, I'm excited for you. Uh, well, thank you, man. what you guys can do with this thing. And I'm just excited in general to to watch it grow and the direction it takes. And, and, uh, well, I appreciate it. That, that uh, start surrounding it because it is it's very much can turn into a, a snowball effect and and you just start hitting right in a lot of these little areas you have nice apparel you have a nice call that not only looks good aesthetically but sounds good you got cool people yep. representing the brand and next thing you know you're hitting in all these different areas and you know all these little things matter a lot big things you know yeah for sure so, for sure and you've got to you know one. doing things the right way and and you know representing the brand in, in the right light is, is going to be super important to me. You know, I'm, I'm not looking to squeeze every single penny I can out of this thing. That's not why I'm doing it. You know, I want to do it because it's cool. So, um, but yeah, no, no, thanks for having me. I really, really appreciate it. And, uh, dude, this is the first podcast sure shot game calls has been on so right. thanks for having us Absolutely yeah man cool shout out yeah man. costas thanks for there you go yeah thanks up, nick we appreciate it man nick's a great guy he was a great worker still a, a great friend of mine um so thank you for getting that hooked up guys if you haven't do some research uh, on the history of sure shot game calls it's a they got a hell of a story and uh this guy yeah. uh, 
had a hell of a career. So they've, uh, there's a lot to like here with these guys. Jay had a lot of fun, man. Thank you so much for joining yeah. me. Today. I'm sure I'll talk no. to you real soon. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. Yeah. And everybody just keep on the lookout. We got a lot of cool stuff coming. Um, you know, it's, we're, we're trying to get this thing going in the right direction. And I'm excited about it. And, um, I look forward to seeing what, seeing what happens with it. Yes, sir. Thanks again, Jay. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. All right. There it is. That was an absolute blast. Jay Bruce, Cincinnati Reds legend, and just all around great guy. I've never met Jay before. This was actually the first time I've ever been on the phone with him, and I've got to say that was that was extremely enjoyable. Uh, all, all the podcasts are. I love all our guests. Um, but you've got a little bit of connection with somebody that you experience some of the same things. And like I said, he did it at a much higher level for a lot longer than I did. But um, you can tell right there, just extremely humble, like most of the guys that that uh, I ever came across. Very humble guys that uh just trying to do the best they can. And for him, the best he can now is uh, with sure shot game calls. So like we said a few times, really excited uh, to follow their journey. Guys, if you aren't, make sure you're following all of our social media outlets, Instagram, Facebook, the closed Facebook group, Dive Bomb Ministries Forum and Fan Page, our TikTok, Kyle's posting all kinds of great videos on there, Snapchat, Cade is on there, hit him up, give him an ad, off-season videos are coming, it's going to be a long spring and summer, but that's all right, we're excited about fishing, we're excited about turkey hunting, warmer weather, getting to the lake. Until next time, y'all be good. Thank you for listening to the Dive Bomb Squadcast.